Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Schoolers, and if you want to take advantage of our nursery as well, if you have little, little ones, babies, you can go now to take advantage of that. The rest of you can open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Before we start our message this morning, I did want to give a little announcement. Last week I gave a lot of information on India because I'd just gotten back from India, but I just found out yesterday that Lakshmi, everybody say Lakshmi together with me. Okay, now you all speak Indian. Lakshmi is a very popular name in India. Lakshmi was a young man that last year we got to share the gospel with, we got to do some discipleship with, but he's been discipled all this past year, and just this past week he was baptized in the ocean, which is a big deal because he's been battling this for a year, and he had to go to his parents and get permission and and tell them that he no longer wants to be a Hindu, that he wants to be a Christian, and so it's a big deal. We've been praying for Lakshmi for about a year now, and I'm excited that he got baptized this past week, so I really praise the Lord for, for God's work in Lakshmi's life. Now, for something completely different my least favorite movie in the entire world, and it may be some of your favorite movies, but it's my least favorite, is What About Bob? I can't stand the movie, What About Bob? Now, some of you may really like that movie. Here's what the movie's about. It's about Bill Murray, Bill Murray's character. He is this man that's got some psychological problems. He's got some phobias, and so he ends up reading this self-help book by this psychiatrist played by Richard Dreyfus, And if you remember the movie, it's like baby steps to the car and babies. Anyway, what ends up happening is the, the Bill Murray character ends up spending a weekend with Richard Dreyfus and his family and makes life miserable for him. He's intrusive, he's rude, he just basically takes over. And by the end of the movie, Richard Dreyfus is actually the one that's been driven to, to craziness. He's in a padded room because he's been sent over the edge by Bill Murray, who has just made life difficult for him. I don't like the movie. You're supposed to root for Bill Murray through the entire movie. I'm rooting for Richard Dreyfus. I felt sorry for him by the end of the movie. His life was ruined. He lost his family to this idiot that was kind of intruding on his life. Now, this is an extreme case, an extreme case of how people interact and treat each other. Let me ask you some questions this morning. Has someone you trusted ever taken advantage of you? How did that make you feel? Have you ever had to swallow your pride and go to someone and admit that you needed help, that you were desperately in need and that you couldn't handle things on your own and you had to go to somebody else for help? Have you ever, quote-unquote, been rudely interrupted by someone in church who asked you to do a favor for them and it was the last thing you really wanted to do because your time is valuable and you don't want people bothering you How many of you have ever had to make hard sacrifices for those that you love to demonstrate that you truly care about them? You know, these are issues of real life. And I've often said this, life would be much easier if we didn't have to deal with people. But we can't have that option. 
part of growing as a Christian, part of living the Christian life, is learning how to get along as people, how to interact as people. Because here's what happens. We are very prone to become selfish, to become narrow-minded, to become so focused on our own lives that we don't want to be inconvenienced, we don't want to be bothered, we don't want anybody to come and and interfere with our lives, we don't want to make sacrifices, because really when it comes down to it, most of the time, we don't want to admit this, but it's true, we're selfish. We are self-centered people that really don't want to have to make sacrifices. Let's think about how the outside world sometimes characterizes Christians? How does the outside world sometimes caricature us or even characterize us? What types of words do they use to talk about Christians? Bigoted, narrow-minded, hypocritical, unloving, gossipy, busybodies, judgmental, holier than thou. I mean, we've heard all these, and some of these may be legitimate, and some of them are not. We, we, we really get called all different types of things, but let's just stop and think about this. What happens if when the world is pointing their finger at us, what they're saying is actually true at times? What happens when it may be true? When, because of our sin, we are living in ways that are hypocritical. We are living in ways that are unloving. We are living in ways that don't show a sacrificial attitude towards others. You know, as we've been going through 1 Thessalonians, we've been asking some key questions. What's a true Christian? was the first question we asked. Second question, what's an obedient church? Third question, what should you expect from your pastor? And then a few weeks ago, uh, it was back about three weeks ago, we looked at what's God's will for your life. And if you remember, God's will for your life is to be sexually pure. To have sexually pure lifestyle. And now we come to the next question that the book of 1 Thessalonians addresses. And this is the question. How do you truly demonstrate authentic love? Love to one another within the church and love to those outside the church. How do you and I demonstrate authentic love? And here's the answer. And it may not be the answer you want to hear. We live sacrificially. We live sacrificially. Here's the main point of the passage before us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It's simply this. Living sacrificially shows authentic love within the church and serves as a powerful witness outside the church. Sacrificial living. Shows love within the church and a powerful witness outside the church. So let's read together just these brief passages of Scripture. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Paul writes, Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. 
this really links back to Paul's prayer in chapter 3. So let's go back and read chapter 3, verses 11 through 13, because Paul is going to give a prayer that he prays to God, and in chapter 4, it's really kind of being answered, how he wants it to be answered. Because back in chapter 3, verse 11, this is what Paul prays. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our ways to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Now there's two overarching issues in this passage of Scripture before us. One is loving one another. The second one is how do we live an attractive lifestyle that's a powerful witness to those outside the church. And so this church has been known as a loving church. Back in chapter 1, verse 3, remember how Paul starts. In chapter 1, verse 3, he says, We remember your labor of love. In other words, this church was working hard at loving one another. They were doing this, and and Paul basically says to them there in verse 9, We really don't have a lot to say to you about love. You're showing love. You you are abounding in love. You're showing brotherly love to one another that we really don't even need to, to write to you about this. Now, the key word that Paul uses there is brotherly love. Philadelphia. That's where we get the word Philadelphia. Brotherly love. It's this type of love that's reserved for Christians because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We've been adopted by God the Father. We've been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, the word Philadelphia, brotherly love, in that culture, in the culture that Paul is writing to, it was not reserved for people outside your family. You you would not show brotherly love to anybody outside your immediate family. But we as Christians, we are family. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before, but you're you're a family. We're a family. We are blood-bought brothers and sisters in Christ. And we belong to each other as family. As a matter of fact, the word brothers and brothers and sisters shows up 19 times. 19 times in 1 Thessalonians. So it's a big deal for Paul to use the term brotherly love. This, this love that relates to each other as family, with God as our Father. Now, it's a very interesting expression that Paul uses here. He says there at the end of verse 10, you've been taught by God to love one another. You've been taught by God. It's only used here This very one instance in the entire New Testament, it's actually literally God-taught. You've been God-taught how to love. And you have to ask the question, what does it mean to be God-taught how to love? Well, what what Paul's referring to is the Holy Spirit. You see, when the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us, when you become a Christian, what the Holy Spirit does is He gives you the power, He gives you the grace, He gives you the ability to love one another because love does not come easy. Love is not something that we produce. Love is something that God has to produce. And so God is continuously teaching us how to love. We are God-taught by the Holy Spirit how to love. Now, how many of you here need to grow in loving others. You don't have to raise your hands. How many of you need to be God-taught how to love? God-taught how to love one another. You see, love is not natural. 
because we're selfish and we're prideful and we don't like to be inconvenienced. And so really when you think about loving one another in the church and loving your family members and, and just being a person of love, it's hard work. It's not easy. It doesn't come naturally. And so the Holy Spirit has to be instrumental in, in building that into us. We've got to constantly be God-taught to love one another because we don't easily love. It doesn't come naturally because we're, we're selfish. Now, this Thessalonian church was growing in their love, so much so that Paul says your love's extending out to, to other cities, other, other churches. Look at verse 10. For indeed, that is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Macedonia included the church in Philippi, the Philippian church, the church in Berea, the Berean church, the church in Corinth, the Corinthian church. And so their love was extending out to other churches. Now, the text here doesn't tell us how, how that love was extending out. We really don't know. We can make some guesses. It could be that they were being hospitable. Now, Thessalonica was the chief city in that area, and I bet you a lot of people traveled from their hometown through Thessalonica, and it could be that the Christians there in Thessalonica were just warm and welcoming and hospitable. It would be kind of like this. Okay, we go to Denver sometimes, don't we, or Fort Collins or Colorado Springs. You go to the Front Range. It would be like you travel from Sterling to the Front Range, and there's this group of Christians there that just love you and encourage you and invite you in, and you've never met them before, but they shower you with love and hospitality when you show up. They have this love from a different city that you don't even know who they are until you get there. So it could have been in hospitality. Or it could have been they were loving these other churches by giving financially to them. We have some evidence from 2 Corinthians chapter 8 that the Thessalonican church, even though it was poverty-stricken, gave sacrificially to other churches. So they may have even given of their money, their time, their talents, their resources. They were a giving church. Whatever, whatever it was, they were sacrificial. In other words, the Thessalonicans weren't thinking, you know, these other churches, they're not really worth our time. These other churches, they're not worthy of our investment. You know, we're struggling, we're under persecution, we may be poverty-stricken, but, but we're so concerned with our own problems that we're not even going to help these churches over here. They didn't have that attitude. They said, you know what, we're going to extend our love, our reach, out to a geographic area. God has uniquely gifted Emmanuel with the ability to be a church that has resources to love on other churches. It's been kind of the history of Emmanuel, kind of in this hub of northeastern Colorado. God has given us the size. God has given us the resources. God has given us the people to be an encouragement to maybe some smaller churches. We have a mission church right up the road in Ovid. Pastor Mark Baker is their pastor, and we as a church encourage and support and love on our mission church. We support Sean and Shana Kramer, the Campus Crusade missionaries that are over campuses in Denver. We, we extend love to them, even though they're ministering in, in Denver. I just got back from India, and by extension, we're, we're loving on missionaries across the world in India and in Russia. And so God has given Emmanuel this unique ability to not just love people here, but to let our love stretch out really across the world. And I pray that God continues to do that, that God continues to give us the grace and the, and the resources to be able to be a blessing to other churches. But in loving, there's always room for improvement. There's always room to grow. We've never arrived in the Christian life when it comes to being a loving person. We need to be stretched. We need to be molded. We need to be challenged. We need to be God-taught to continue to love more and more. Now, Paul gets to his main command here. It's at the end of verse 10. 
He says, but we urge you. That's the command. We urge you. We strongly encourage you. We exhort you. And what Paul's going to do here, he's going to give four, four exhortations, four commands, four urgings that he wants this church to do. And these are very practical. These are just how we relate to each other as Christians. Here's the first. Let's let's explore these in more detail. Here's the first. We urge you, Paul says, to do this more and more. What more and more? Here's the first thing. The first command is to increase and abound in brotherly love. Paul says, we urge you to do this, this brotherly love, to increase in it more and more. And the original language really has this idea of increasing and abounding in love. You know, that's the hallmark of being a Christian. You strip everything else away. The, the foundational thing about being a Christian is being a person that loves, a loving person. And let me just say this before we go any further. You and I cannot do these things that Paul is asking us to do unless we first have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 22 through 23. Peter says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. How do you do that? Well, Peter answers that. Verse 23, since or because, how can you do that? Because you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. What Peter's saying here is the only way that you can love one another is because you've been born again. Well, what does it mean to be born again? It means that God has come and changed you from the inside out. He's radically transformed you by giving you a new life. And it comes through Jesus' death on the cross. Notice what John says in 1 John 4.10. He says this. This is a very important passage of Scripture when we talk about love. It says, In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. This passage is saying that we're not the ones who instigate or, or initiate a love relationship with God. God's the one that started it. It was in God's heart from the very beginning. For God so loved the world that God loved us first. And how did he express that love to us? How did God love us? Well, it says he sent Jesus to die as our substitute. Jesus to die in our place. Jesus died on the cross, shed his blood, so that you and I could experience the love of God. And so when Christ was dying, he said things that were amazing, like, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so any, any discussion about love has got to start with the Father's love to his people through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if you're here this morning and you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you've never repented of your sin, you've never acknowledged your sin, you've never owned up to your sin and said, I'm a sinner, I deserve hell, and my only hope is to place my trust in Jesus Christ, then my my charge to you this morning, my encouragement to you this morning before we go any further is this, repent and believe in Jesus. And when that happens, he comes and gives you a new life, and he gives you a new heart, and he gives you the ability to love. Everything else that I'm saying here is not going to make any sense, and you're not going to be able to do it unless you first have that relationship with Jesus. So would you trust him this morning and believe in him, and he'll give you the power to love. Now, what does Jesus have to say about loving one another? It's the hallmark of what it means to be a Christian. John 13, 34 through 35. Listen to what Jesus says. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. 
Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're to my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, it's interesting. Why does Jesus say this is a new commandment? It's not new in the sense that they'd never heard this before because if you go all the way back to Leviticus in the Old Testament, it says we should love one another. But Jesus puts a caveat there. It's a new commandment because we're to love each other just as Christ loved us. How did Christ love us? Sacrificially, unconditionally. That's why it's so radical. And Jesus says that the primary way people are going to know you're Christians is by the way you love one another. You can know as much theology as your head can be filled with. And the world may not know you're a Christian if you have no love. You can have a fish on the back of your car. You can listen to K-Love. You can walk around with a big Bible. You can do all these things. But the way that the world's going to know that you're a Christian is by the way you love. Love one another earnestly from the heart. And this theme runs all throughout the Bible. I mean, Jesus teaches, it's foundational, that that the hallmark of being a Christian is that we love one another. We love each other sacrificially. We love each other unconditionally. We earnestly love each other from the heart. But but notice where else in the Bible it says this. Romans 12.10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Love one another with brotherly affection. Hebrews 13.1, let brotherly love continue. Hebrews 13.1, let brotherly love continue continue. 1 John 3.23, this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he has commanded us. 1 John 4.7, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. We could go on and on, but here's the one thing I want you to pay attention to. These are commands by Jesus which means it's not optional. We can't take it or leave it. These aren't suggestions. Jesus is commanding us. This is a new commandment, which means that when the Lord of the church tells us to do something and commands us to do something, we better do it. And so here's the question. How are you doing this morning at loving one another? And you know, love is not just some gushy emotional feeling. Yes, emotions are involved in it, but true Christian love is always backed up in concrete action. It's not just an intention to love. It's backed up by actions that show love. So have you concretely, tangibly expressed love this week to those in your life and those around you in ways that are tangible, in ways that are concrete, in ways that are specific, in ways that are sacrificial, in ways that are unconditional? And if you haven't, then pray for the Lord to give you the grace and strength to to be God-taught to do it this week. So that's the first command. Love one another. Let it abound more and more. Love one another. Here's the second command that Paul gives us. Live a quiet life. Verse 11. And aspire to live quietly. Now what does it mean to live a quiet life? Does that mean that you're like a monk and you take a vow of silence and you walk around and you never say anything? For some of us that would be very difficult. Those of you know what I'm talking about. Maybe your spouse is nudging you. Yeah, it's talking about you. So, does it mean that you like never say anything and that you're kind of passively walking around and you just kind of, what does it mean to live quietly? That's kind of a weird thing. It's just part of the scriptures that we really don't know what he's talking about. Does it mean like a doormat where you just get walked all over and you're just kind of this quiet, like, dormouse? 
school, you know, you know nothing, nothing really happens. I'm just kind of this quiet little person. Evidently, this was a problem in the church because Paul had to address it twice. Turn over to 2 Thessalonians for just a minute. In his second letter to second Th- in his second letter to the Thessalonians, he had to address this issue twice. And so in chapter 3, verses 11 through 13, he's going to address this issue again. So evidently, it was a problem in the church. Verse 11, chapter 3, 2 Thessalonians. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. What's Paul talking about living quietly? Well, it could mean in the immediate context of what was going on in the city with all the persecution that Paul says, live a, live a low profile. Keep a low profile. Don't draw attention to yourself. Don't draw unneeded attention to yourself in the midst of persecution. But then we can take this to an extreme, can't we? Some people can take this passage and say, okay, Paul's giving us permission never to share the gospel. So we just live quietly. We never share the gospel. We never proclaim the gospel. We never stand up for truth. We're never bold. Can we take the rest of the Bible and make a case for that? No, we can't. That's an extreme. Uh, we, we can't just not be quiet. There's times when we've got to give a verbal witness. There's times when we've got to share. So what does it mean to live a quiet life? Interestingly, there's other passages of Scripture that talk about living a quiet life being a witness to unbelievers, especially an unbelieving spouse. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, listen to what Paul urges Timothy to do. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. What Paul's doing here is he's linking praying for governing authorities and living a quiet life with the outcome being that by our praying and by our quiet lives that it may be attractive to those in high positions and it may be an evangelistic tool it may be a good witness it may be a powerful way for lost people to see the power of God but Paul also I mean Peter links this to wives first Peter 3 verses 1 through 4 likewise wives Be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious." Peter's saying one of the ways that you may win over an unbelieving spouse is by this this quiet spirit. Now, what does it mean to live a quiet life? What's Paul saying here? You don't forcefully intrude yourself into other people's lives. You don't become a burden to them in unhealthy ways. You live a life of humility. You live a life of respect. You're not always drawing attention to yourself. You're not always puffing yourself up with pride. You're not obnoxious. You're not egotistical. You're you're, you're not always looking for a fight. You're not combative. You're not argumentative. You are just a respectful, humble, gentle type of person. You're not wanting to stir the pot. Proverbs 29, 11. A fool 
gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Ecclesiastes 4, 6. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and striving after the wind. Living a quiet life, humble, respectful, not obnoxious, not rude, not always drawing attention to yourself, but being respectful, being humble, being gentle. Here's the third command. Mind your own business. I didn't say it, Paul did. Look what he says there, middle of verse 11. And to mind your own affairs. Don't be a busybody. Don't be a gossip. Don't always want to know all the juicy details of everything that's going on. I mean, this person likes to be a know-it-all. They got to have the information on everything. They got to get into all the juicy gossip. They they want to stir things up in the life of the church. They're they're always looking for a problem, and they can't be satisfied if there's not a crisis. You guys know anybody like this? Their life is always chaotic. They thrive on conflicts and chaos, and they're always getting into your business and telling you what you should do and always giving you advice and always being very quick to give you advice and give you what their mind is and speak their mind. But when you look at their life, it's really chaotic, and they have really no business telling you how to live because they're blind to their own chaotic life. But of course, they thrive on this type of chaos. They're busybodies. They're gossips. They're blinded to their own issues. I think in the context of 1 Thessalonians, what Paul's basically saying is, just be a good citizen. Pay your taxes. Be a good citizen. Don't be a busybody. Don't be obnoxious. Live a quiet life. Mind your own business. Don't be stirring things up. Don't take up others' offenses. Don't be getting all involved in the juicy gossip. Don't thrive on chaos. Instead, just stay to yourself and worry about yourself for a while. Don't be worried about everybody else's business. Just focus on yourself for a while. Live a quiet life. Fourth command. Have a Christian work ethic. The end of verse 11. And to work with your hands as we instructed you. Now Paul says work with your hands. They're specifically talking probably in that culture about either manual labor or some type of artisan or craftsman or builder or something that you would do literally to work with your hands. But I think by implication what he's saying is become a self-supporting Christian worker who has a good work ethic. Don't be lazy. Don't be a freeloader. Don't be a mooch. Don't take advantage of other people's generosity. Don't impose upon each other. Do you realize, some of you may be allergic to work, but do you realize that work was ordained by God before Adam and Eve sinned? Some people may think, well, work is a result of sin. Sin, You know, Adam and Eve sinned and they brought work into the world. No, work is painful because of Adam and Eve, but work in and of itself was there before sin. Now you say, well, where do you get that, Pastor Sean? Well, let me show you. Genesis 2.15. Genesis 2 is before Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is the fall. What does God do in Genesis 2.15? The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to do what? To work it and to keep it. Adam was to be a cultivator. Adam was to work. Adam was to till the ground. Adam was to flourish by working. Now, the fall has made work painful, and toilsome, and maybe not so much fun, but God has ordained work. 
Now here's probably what was going on in this church, because we'll get to this next week. There's a lot of confusion about the second coming. And so probably what happened was they were thinking, well, Jesus is going to come back any time now, so I don't need to work. Anybody ever had that attitude? Christ is coming back any time now, so I really don't have to worry about anything here because he's coming back. Well, the problem is, do we know when he's coming back? No, we don't. We know it's like going to be soon, but it could be a day. It could be 10 days. It could be 10 years. It could be 1,000 years. We really don't know. There's no excuse for us to not work and to become lazy. Here's the bottom line, I think, what Paul's saying. If you take these four commands together, here's what Paul's saying. If you're the kind of person who tends to be nosy and all up in people's business and obnoxious and intrusive and a gossip and like Bill Murray's character on What About Bob? (laughs) And you're doing things in unhealthy ways. What Paul's saying is stop it. Just stop it, repent, and stop. Stop being that type of person. That's, that's the ditch, that's the extreme number one. If, you're, if, you're, if you tend to lean that way, Paul says you need to stop it. But there's another way you can tend to lean. Paul may say if, you, if you're prone to be closed in, guarded, you don't want anybody bothering you, you don't want to be inconvenienced, you never want to take risks, you don't, you don't, you're not a very loving person, Paul says that's another ditch you can fall in. Stop that. Become more loving. Become more accepting. Love one another. So there's two extremes there. One is to be unloving by taking advantage of others. The other is to be unloving by just never sacrificing and closing yourself off to others. Both are ditches that you need to be careful not to fall into. Now, Paul gives the purpose why we're to live this way. Abound in love, live quietly, mind your own business, and have a Christian work ethic. Why? Well, verse 12 gives the so that. The purpose. Notice how verse 12 starts. So that. And he gives two two purposes here. There's two purposes of why we're to live this way. Here's the first. First of all, so that you may have a lifestyle that positively attracts non-believers. Notice what he says there. That you may walk properly before outsiders. And he uses the word outsiders there, which really means unbelievers. Think Think about it for a moment. If you live this type of lifestyle, this sacrificial, humble, Christian work ethic, non-gossipy, loving, sacrificial lifestyle, our world does not know anything like that. They don't know things like that. And so it's an attractive and powerful witness to a watching world because they don't have those type of categories. Because what is our world known for? Gossip, unloving, unsacrificial, busybodies, grumbling, not very good work ethic, lazy, all these types of things. And so when you live a different type of lifestyle, it's a powerful witness to the watching world. Non-believers look at that and say, wait a minute, I've never seen anything like that. That's different. That's attractive. That's winsome. You know, as Christians, we need to not give unbelievers any ammunition against us in not believing in Jesus because of our lifestyle. We as Christians need to be known as the best citizens, the most loving, the most productive, the ones that the world looks at and says, wow, that's different. But secondly, secondfold, you, you ultimately should depend upon God to meet all your needs. Look at what he says there. Be dependent on no one. Be dependent on no one. Now, we need to be careful here. I don't think Paul's saying that you should never depend on anybody, that you should never have any needs, or that you should never have, there should never be any benevolence needs in a church, or you should never ask for help. What I think he's saying is, is that you need to pull your own weight 
And it shouldn't become a habit. It shouldn't be perpetual where you're mooching off people, where you're freeloading, where you're not pulling your weight, where you're always taking, 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 but you're never giving back. I think Paul's giving a warning there. You know, we need to have wisdom in how we use benevolence. It doesn't mean that if you have a legitimate need, we're not going to help you. We as elders, we as in the deacons and in the staff, when we help people in the church with benevolence issues, we want to we use wisdom in how we do that, and we want to, to help. But here's our ultimate goal. There's a fine line between helping legitimate needs and enabling patterns of bad behavior. And there's a lot of people that have patterns of bad behavior. And we don't want to enable that. We want to get you out of those patterns. So sometimes benevolence may mean we may not give you money, but we may give you financial counseling, or we may take you over here and sit down and disciple you in this area because that's what you need more than just a quick fix. We should not put any reasons in the mind of unbelievers to see us as Christians as unproductive members of society. Now, what's the bottom line? This is a gospel issue. It's a gospel issue. The gospel affects every aspect of our lives. Now, some of you may think, well, the gospel is what I need to believe in order to become a Christian. Yes, the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it's what you need to to believe and become a Christian. But the gospel also informs how you live the rest of your life. You're always pointing to Jesus and how you live. Your life is always a testimony to the gospel. So when you don't love When you don't show brotherly love, you're not walking in accordance with the gospel. When you're obnoxious and gossipy and a busybody and you're controversial, you're not walking in step with the gospel. When you're lazy and you don't have a good Christian work ethic and you have a reputation for being a freeloader or being a mooch or being a a leech or whatever you want to call it, you're not living in accordance with the gospel. When you're not sacrificial, when you're not selfless, when you're not self-giving, you're not living in accordance with the gospel. When you're arrogant, when you're boastful, when you're prideful, when you're drawing attention to yourself, when you're puffing yourself up, you're not living in accordance with the gospel. And let me just ask you a question. What does a watching world need more than anything else? The gospel. What does the gospel mean? It means good news. Does your life bring good news to people or bad news? Is your life a positive witness to Jesus or is your life a negative? Because everybody's a witness. The question isn't whether you're going to be a witness. The question is, are you going to be a negative witness or are you going to be a positive witness? And what Paul's saying here is don't give the world any reason to look at you and say, that's what a Christian is? Now, there's going to be times where they're going to look at us and say, that's what a Christian is, and it's going to be because of our stances on certain issues of morality and stances on the scriptures and stances on things like that. But, but let's not give them ammunition to, 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 to say that, oh, they're unproductive, they're unloving, they're lazy. Give them good news. Don't put unnecessary stumbling blocks in the way of think people to think poorly about Christ. But instead, let's live sacrificially. And maybe this week you need to pray about, how do I live sacrificially How do I live authentically so that I can show love to those within the church in concrete, tangible ways and I can be a powerful witness to those outside the church that see an attractive, winsome life and my life this week is living out the good news of the gospel, not bad news. Let me ask you to pray this morning. Let me ask you to bow your heads as you think about this scripture. 
very practical encouragements here from Paul. And maybe there's one particular area that you just need to laser sharp focus in on. Maybe it's in the area of love. Maybe it's in the area of living a quiet life. Maybe it's in the area of minding your own business. Or maybe it's in the area of having a Christian work ethic. These are very practical issues that Paul confronts us with this morning. And, and again, you can only do this through the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, giving you grace and strength to do that. So spend some time asking the Lord to search your heart and to show you areas where you can be God-taught this morning to grow in grace. Those that need help in these areas, Lord, and I know that um, for me sometimes even, not, not sometimes, a lot of the times, Lord, um, I, I don't want to be inconvenienced. I don't want to be bothered. I don't want to be intruded upon because my, my time is precious. Father, help me to see that you're calling me to live sacrificially, calling me to show brotherly love, to abound in that more and more. And Lord, show me ways this week how I can do it in tangible, concrete ways, Lord. Help us all as a church to, to have that attitude that we're going to love each other deeply. Father, help us to live quiet lives, humble lives. Lord, help us to not be busybodies and gossips, but to, to mind our own business. And Lord, help us to have a good Christian work ethic. Lord, we don't even talk about that a lot. But Lord, it's in your scriptures, and you, you expect us to, to work as to glorify you. And Father, help us to be good witnesses to the outside world, that they look at us and they see that we are Christians by our love. They see we are Christians by a distinctly different lifestyle. And Lord, help us to be different in a positive way. Help us to live out the good news of the gospel this week. Father, if there's anybody here this morning that's never trusted you for salvation, trusted in Jesus Christ alone to save them from their sins, who died on the cross and rose again, would today be their day of salvation? Holy Spirit, would you please open blind eyes and open hearts to receive Jesus as Savior and Lord. May we live lives to your glory this week, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.